Well, good morning. Uh, Scott reminded me I should introduce myself. Uh, my name is Bill Berry, and um, I introduced myself on Thursday as a, as a um, retired elder at this church, and Scott didn't appreciate the humor, but... Um, <laughs> Anyway, I, um, start, to start off this morning, I uh, wanted to just do a little illustration, and so I've asked a couple of people just to, just to come on up to the stage here, and maybe, maybe gather, gather in this area. And what I'd like you to do is use your imagination a little bit. So these, um, these six people are going to represent the church, not just ABF, but the church of, of Christ, okay? And the rest of you are going to represent the outside world. So you are the folks who are, you know, the unchurched, the secular people. And uh, so I, I just want to make sure you got that. So you guys, in order to show that your Christian love and that you are united um, in Christ, would you just form a circle here in, in this area and, and then hold hands, just to join hands there? Great, thank you. So you'll notice that... <laughs> Without any prompting at all, they formed a, a picture of what might be considered the inward-focused church. Now, I imagine if you guys were a good church, that you would want these folks to come and join you. But I want you to hear a little bit about kind of how they see things. So if you are the secular people and you're thinking about the church and you're looking at these folks, what do you notice, first of all? They've got their backs to you. What else? They're kind of closed off. Okay. So if you are the, the outside world and you're looking at this church, which is kind of closed off and they've got their backs towards you and put yourself in a secular mind frame, what word might you use to describe the church or to describe Christians? Say, say it out. Separate. Separate. Ex exclusive. Okay. What else? Closed. What? Intimidating. That's interesting. How else might you hear Christians described? Unfriendly. What? Unfriendly. Unfriendly. Okay. Non-welcoming. Non-welcoming. So you could think of lots of other words, I'm sure, but these people are kind of shaking their heads, right? They're saying, no, no, no. We, we love each other. We're good people. We, we love people, and we're holding hands with each other. <laughs> And yet you folks on the outside see a completely different thing, right? And so um, I think maybe a little bit better picture would be if you continued to form a circle and hold hands, but if you could turn and face outward. Okay, there we go. So now we've got an outwardly focused church. And you might imagine that um, the church really is the only organization in the world that is designed primarily for the people outside of the organization. And so this is the posture that we need to have, is facing the world as opposed to close off to the world. And when we forget this, this outward focus, then we begin to lose our sense of mission that Christ has given us. Thank you guys so much. So to further illustrate um, how the outside world might see the church a little bit differently than we see ourselves, I've um, collected a group of what I will call funny church signs, and um, 
Uh, just, just run through these. You know, whoever's praying for snow, please stop. Uh, my favorite of all, we love hurting people. Don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. And then to show the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus, Jesus would so smack you in the head, the Baptist church of something, and uh, whoever stole our mower, God will get you. And to illustrate that maybe people on the outside think that we as Christians tend to check our brain before we come into the church, love God, love others, it's not rocket surgery. Some of you have to think about that one a little bit. So I volunteer with a group um, called uh, Search Ministries, and, and we, we just try to have conversations with, with people about spiritual things. And one of the things that I love to ask people is, you know, have you had a conversation with a Christian um, who, you know, kind of tried to share their faith with you? And if so, what was that experience like? And I get one of two responses. The first is, no, my Christian friends never talk to me about spiritual things. Or the other one is, Christians, they don't listen. All they want to do is talk, and they want to force their ideas on me, but they don't want to listen to what I have to say. Okay? And so um, what, what we try to do is, is just kind of encourage people. You know, the, the, probably the best like, evangelistic tool that there is is listening. And oftentimes, we as a church, we don't do that very well. Now, I know in a room this size, there are some people, there are a few people here who um, wouldn't call yourselves Christians, right? You may have been invited by somebody else. You might have uh, just kind of stumbled into the church somehow, but, but you know, you haven't really crossed that line of faith, and you're here just kind of checking things out, and that's great. I'm really glad that you're here. This message is kind of oriented towards the Christians in the group, but if you are not one of those, I would really encourage you um, to uh, take out the, the notepad and take some notes, and then you can use that to hold your Christian friends accountable for communicating with you in a way that the Bible says that you are to, to communicate, Okay. So as, as part of um, this search ministry, really, our, our mission is to help people um, just bring in a clearer perspective what a relationship with God might look like in their life. And so to do that, there's a, a framework that we use, and we just call it one, two, three, and you'll see that in your outline. I encourage you to take some notes. I want this to be practical. I want this to be something that really helps make a difference in your life. And in the one, two, three, each of those stands for something. So the one stands for Everyone is important to God, okay? We start with one because everyone is important to God. And Jesus told this uh, point magnificently in Luke 15, where he tells three stories, which are really all the same point of the story. He talks about the shepherd who's got a hundred sheep, and one of those sheep strays away, and he leaves everything behind. He leaves the 99 behind, and he goes out, and he searches, and he searches, and he searches until he finds his lost sheep. And when he does, he puts it on his back, and he carries it back, and he brings it into the fold. And he calls all of his friends together, and he says, let's have a party because the sheep that was lost is now found. And then he says, even so... All of heaven rejoices when one person comes to faith in Christ. That's how much 
God puts on one person how much emphasis he puts, and that's how much God cares about every one person. In Matthew 9, um, Jesus is walking among multitudes of people, and he's seeing all these people with all of these needs. And I love the way it says, and Jesus felt compassion on them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. And then the Lord said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray that God would send out workers into his harvest. And I love that Jesus was motivated by compassion, not obligation or anything else. He saw the needs of people around him. And that's what we need to be about as his followers, is seeing the needs of the people around us. There's a guy, um, he's the president of, of Search. So I went to a search conference five years ago, the first one that I went to, and Larry Moody is his name. And Larry was talking up in front and um, there's a crowd of about probably 400 or so people. And Larry tells a story. He says, you know, back in 2000, this is, you know, 14 years later. He says, back in 2000, um, I had a guy who was my number one. His name was Bob. And I prayed for Bob every day that he'd come into a relationship with Christ. And I met with Bob. I spent some time with him. And he was my one, number one guy. And he came to faith in Christ during that year. And then the second year, there's a guy named John. And John was my number one, he says. And I prayed for John every day. And John came to Christ that year. And the next year, I had Chris. And Chris was my number one. And I prayed for him. And I spent time with him and ended up leading him to Christ in the third year. And he went on like this year after year after year for 14 years. And then Larry says this. He says, would those 14 guys stand up? Wow. And 14 men stood up. And... Um, this, uh, the impact that he had, and then he did something, uh, it just blew me away. He says, would anybody in this group who's been led to Christ by one of these 14 men, please stand up. Another 20 or 30 guys stood up. And I'm telling you, I had just tears welling up in my eyes. I'd never seen anything so powerful. I said, if I could be part of that, just a little taste of that, it would be so exciting. And so, each one is important to God, but where do we start? One of my um, all-time role models, a guy named Joe Aldrich. Joe was, when I became a Christian at age 18, he was my first pastor. And then he left that church to go be the president of Multnomah Bible College. And so when I graduated from USC, I went up and did a year of grad school up at Multnomah, got to study under Joe uh, even more. And so the man just became, he, I've learned more about um, sharing Jesus with the, with the world from him than anybody I know. And so I'm going to probably quote him a few times, so I figure I'd give you, give you a little background on who he is. But I know Joe would always say that um, there is no impact without contact. Think about that. No impact without contact. And do you know that studies have shown the average Christian, after they've been a Christian for two years, has no non-Christian friends? None. How are we going to impact the world if we don't know anybody? We have to take this seriously. We have to get out of this, this bubble of being huddled together all the time. But why is it? I mean, this is a great place to be, right? I mean, it's so easy to be at church. You come here and people love you and they hug you and they take care of your kids. And, and you know, and it's fun and they do outings like bocce ball and retreats and 
Dodger games, and, and they have all this stuff going on, and, and Lord knows there's plenty of needs in the church, you know? You, you can fill all of your day being here, but all the time that you're here, you're not out there, and we have to be out there. We have to forge these relationships because those people are important to God. Joe Aldrich used to say that um, we're called to be fishermen, and a good fisherman knows where to find the schooling fish, and then he would say, those schooling fish are the people who respond to you socially. So think about it. In your neighborhood, who responds to you socially? Can you invite them over for dinner and just have a fun evening with them? At your place of work, who responds to you? Who do you get along with? Can you just take them out to lunch and spend an hour, an hour and a half with them and build the relationship and ask them questions? You know, we can do this. Then you can get creative. You know, I've got a couple of friends at Search um, out in Houston, and um, one of them has this big house and um, wonderful fire pit and stuff out in the out, outdoors. And so they found that there were these group, these people in their community who loved whiskey tasting. And, and so these guys decided that they would organize at the one guy's house a monthly whiskey tasting and discussion about life and God. And they have created this huge crowd of people that comes every month to taste whiskey and talk about life and God. And these people, you know, would have never heard the gospel. They would have never walked into a church. But they're hearing about Jesus through these people who became neighbors. You see, the word neighbor in the story of the Good Samaritan, which is who is my neighbor, comes from a root that means to be close to or draw near to. And so to become a neighbor... We need to develop the capacity to draw near to other people. We've got to do that in creative ways. Who do you golf with? Who do you play with? Who, who is out there that you respond to socially? Bring them into your circle and develop a relationship with them. So um, the first thing is that every, everyone is important to God. And heaven throws a party every time one person comes into a relationship with him. Number two means that there's two principles. The first is that a person's spiritual journey is a process. And number two, uh, God is responsible for the results. So when we say that the person's, person's financial, spiritual journey is a process, that means it's not an event it's not a one-time thing. It's not get in there and do it and, and retreat to the safety of the church. It's a process. It's an ongoing thing. When I was a young freshman at USC, I was looking at all the Christian groups on campus, and so I joined Campus Crusade for Christ, and they did a little bit of training, and then they turned us loose on the campus, and they sent us out there, and we would um, find some unsuspecting person sitting on the lawn enjoying the nice day or whatever it was. And we plop down next to him and we'd say, you know, we're taking a survey on campus and I'd like to ask you a few questions. And so we ask them these spiritual questions and then try to engage them in a good discussion about the four spiritual laws. Uh, and, you know, it's really kind of uncomfortable. And a lot of you think, oh, man, I knew that's what evangelism was. And I don't want any part of that, you know. Uh, then they came up with this great idea, Campus Crusade. And they started this campaign that was called I Found It. And what they did was all over L.A., they put these huge billboards, and it just says, I found it. And then we wore these little buttons that said, I found it, and we had T-shirts that said, I found it. And, of course, people were supposed to ask you, what did you find? And you'd be able to talk to them about Christ. And so I was in the stool cafeteria and um, grabbed my plate, and I sat down at the table, and 
um, I'm, I'm eating my lunch. I got my little button on there. And um, the, the cutest girl in the whole dorm comes up with her plate, and she sits right across from me. I've never said a word to her. And she looks up, looks at my chest, and says, what did you find? I froze. <laughs> I, I, I had a complete brain freeze. I felt adrenaline rush through my system. My face turned red, and I, I couldn't think of anything to say. You know, I mean, we prepared all this time for this, and I, I didn't know what to say. And so I, I, to this day, I don't know what I said. I, something like, I got to just, I, I got to go or, uh, you know, something. <laughs> and I decided that maybe relational evangelism would be better than like trying to, trying to talk to strangers. Now, I know that, that those kinds of things, those people who go out and plop next to somebody at a park bench and pull out the four spirituals, I know thousands of people have been saved through that kind of ministry. And I think that's great. And I rejoice with Paul that, you know, however the gospel is preached, you know, that, that is just awesome. But I also know that most Christians would be scared to death to go out and just engage a stranger in conversation. And they think, if that's evangelism, I want no part of it at all. I also know that the great majority of people who come to faith in Christ come because of a personal relationship not because of a stranger sitting down and sharing a track with them. And while that is, a, you know, all methods are good methods for sharing Christ, I, I want to present this as an, a, a relational message where we can come into somebody's life. Joe Aldrich used to always say, you know, people need to hear the music of the gospel before they hear the words of the gospel. And I love that. So um, evangelism is a process. And I like to think of it like this. Think of a, a golf course and... What you'll, what you'll think about is, you know, you can see close to the hole, um, when the ball's there, I mean, that's somebody who's close to Christ. They're, they're almost there. If you invited them to church, they'd probably come. If you sat down and said, can I share the four spiritual laws with you? They'd probably say, yes, I've been waiting for somebody to ask me that question. You know, there are people like that, um, and they, they, they've been brought along. But there, those are the other people who are kind of um, wondering, and they're curious, they're open, but they're a little bit further away. And then you've got the people who are apathetic. They think the gospel is irrelevant in their life. They're not antagonistic towards it, but it's just kind of irrelevant. And then when you get all the way back to the T, you're as far away from the hole as you can be. You're as far away from Christ as you can be. And these people are resistant. They're opposed. They're the ones that read the Richard Dawkins books and all those kind of people. And, and with anybody, wherever they are on that spiritual golf course, my role is just to help them take the next step towards God, whatever that is. If they're on the whole, maybe it's just kind of lead them to Christ. If they're far away, maybe it's just kind of answer some questions, but move them forward on that spiritual golf course. And the way that we do that is relationally. The way that we do that is by asking questions. Um, ask somebody their story. You know, where are you from? What was life like growing up for you? Tell me a little bit about your family. Get to know them as real people, you know? Um, they're not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. And we need to develop the ability to draw near and to be close to those people. So start by asking a question and drawing them in. And then if, and I emphasize if, they ask you your story, be prepared to tell your story. Be prepared to tell it in a winsome, winsome way that is, that is honest, that is concise, 
that is clear and that brings Christ into the picture. I mean, I'm imagining that you've got a point in your life where you had a, a radical intersection with God in your life, and that's part of your story. It's okay to share that. That's what it means to be a witness. It's to tell what happened to you, not to tell somebody else what they need to believe. Okay? So if somebody asks me my story, I'll try to be as honest as possible and, and as vulnerable, and I'll, I'll basically tell them you know, that my mom died when I was three years old, I was raised by a dad who was a Marine in World War II, and he was a harsh guy. Um, we had a terrible relationship, and I would have told you that I hated my dad growing up. Um, he never remarried, and so I never saw a picture of a relationship, a functional relationship, where two people really loved each other and cared about each other. I moved out of the house shortly after I was 18, and I never planned to go back again. Somehow at school, I, I met this group of uh, Christians who told me the story of Jesus and how he came to bring us into a right functional relationship with God. And I don't know what it was, but that message really resonated with me. And after a while, I opened myself up to the love and the grace of Jesus. And my life's never been the same. Where I was selfish and self-centered, um, I was now like really focused on other people. The anger that welled up for all those years, just kind of melted away. And I'll tell you, with my dysfunctional background, I would have been the last person in the world that you would have picked to have a happy, healthy 36-year marriage. And the only answer I got is what God's done in my life. And that's how I just kind of tell my story. It's a minute long. And, and you know, it, it kind of invites conversation about what God did in my life without being intrusive and without being pushy and without um, you know, forcing that on somebody else. So share your stories um, with each other. And then after the relationship has gone on for a while, it's great. Yeah, it's important to just try to get God you know, out on the table. And so I'll just say, you know, hey, John, um, I'm just wondering, what part, if any, has God played in your life up to this point? And if the answer is none, that's fine. You know, it's just an open invitation to share where God has been. And then usually they'll say something like, you know, well, I used to go to church or, you know, they'll bring up something about their religious background. And what I like to do is just ask, was it meaningful to you? Did it make a difference in your life? And that will help you figure out kind of where this person is on that spiritual golf course and how you can help them take the next steps towards Christ. That's the first principle that evangelism is a process. The second is that God is responsible for the results. I, I love this verse. Let me just, just read it to you. It's from 1 Corinthians 3, and Paul writes to this kind of dysfunctional church, and they're all kind of arguing, you know, and some are saying, I'm of Apollos, because Apollos shared Jesus with them, and, and but others are going, I'm of Paul, because, you know, Paul led them to Christ, and uh, Paul says this to the church. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? We're servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Paul says then, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but it was God who caused the, faith, the seed of faith to grow. Paul is clearly articulating this last point. God is responsible for the results, not me. Whew, I mean, what a relief that is, right? But the problem is, you know, when we start thinking that we're responsible and we've got to make this thing happen or it's not going to happen, then we end up just overstepping our bounds. So if somebody in conversation says, you know, oh, I once went to church. We go, church? He said church, you know? And we back up the whole spiritual dump truck and we dump the whole thing on him from start to finish. And we walk away thinking, wow, 
I got to share Jesus with that person. And they're walking away saying, man, I got to stay as far away from that guy as possible. Because <laughs> we just overstepped our bounds. And the key, you see, is love. When love is felt, the message is heard. I had a, I had a, Jew, I had a Jewish friend that I um, was talking with a while ago. And she was really upset because her son had just told her that he, um, he decided that there was no God. And, you know, she had raised him in the Jewish faith to believe in God, and then he had rejected that, and she was really upset. And so I just kind of asked her some questions, you know. Um, I said, why, what, why did he make that decision? What was it that led to that? And she, we kind of shared about that, and she's talking about the same kind of questions that, that people will ask you, you know. Um, how can there be a loving God and there's suffering in the world and all those kinds of things? And uh, so she's kind of sharing with me about what he said. And, you know, I could have jumped in and answered all those questions, right? And th that would just shut down the conversation. But I just asked the question. I said, well, what did you say to him? And she actually had some really wise advice. She had some really good things that she said to him. And I complimented her on that. I said, you really showed a lot of wisdom in how you responded to him. And um, I could tell she'd really given this some thought. And we just, we had a wonderful conversation, and then we went our separate ways. Well, a couple days later, we got back together and began a conversation again. I said, hey, I really enjoyed that conversation we had last time. How's it going with your son? We got to talking a little bit. And um, it ended up that, that I was able to take her Bible and open it to Isaiah 53 and have her read through that and share the gospel of Jesus from the Old Testament, from her, own, from her own Bible. And we're still having ongoing conversations. We're still praying for her. But the, the door is open. You know, you've got to be careful. But answers often tend to shut down the conversation where questions will open up the conversation. And so that's where we want to get to. We want to be asking those, those important questions. Well, number three, there's three barriers to keeping somebody from coming to Christ. The first is what we call the intellectual barrier. Okay, the intellectual barrier is just those questions that people have that legitimately keep them from believing in God or coming to Christ. They are those questions. You know, If God is all-powerful and all-loving, then how come there's so much suffering in the world? That really gets to me. I don't like that. I can't, I can't imagine that there's a God. Or doesn't science disprove the Bible? Or, you know, isn't Christianity just a psychological crutch? Or all of those kinds of questions, and they're difficult sometimes questions to answer. And they're, they're legitimate questions that keep people from coming to faith in Christ. If we just give them a, a quick little throwaway, you know, bumper sticker answer, it's not going to move them um, towards Christ. So First uh, Peter uh, 3.15 says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So there's two parts to that verse, and I love that, that we're always to be ready to give a defense. That a defense, that's an apologetic, that's an answer. So we've got to be ready. And the problem is, I find that most Christians are woefully uneducated in being able to give a defense for their faith. You know, all the other commands in Scripture, you know, love each other. We, do, we try to do that. You know, husbands, love your wives. Wives, you subject to your husbands. All of these things, we, we work really hard to, to obey those things. But this says, you know, um, we're, we're to be able to give an answer to everyone who asks us. We don't really obey that very well, right? 
Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a defense for the hope that's in you. But the second part of that is with gentleness and reverence. Okay? And it is so unattractive when Christians argue about spiritual things with people. And there's no reason for that. Somebody may disagree with you, but you don't have to get in an argument about it. An argument is trying to prove that you're right. We can't prove anything. We already said, you know, God's responsible for the results, right? So, so it's not us. We just say, you know, just ask the question, could I share with you kind of how I see that? And Stephen Covey in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, one of his habits is seek first to understand and then to be understood. And I think the church could use a lot of help with that particular habit. Seek to understand why do you have that question? Why do you believe that? Why is that important to you? Ask the questions and get underneath that, and then ask for permission to share with them if and when it's appropriate. I um, was coming back from a search conference last year, and I, um, the search conference was in Denver, and so we, um, we had a three-hour flight on the way back, and I got onto the plane. There's this old plane, I'm looking down the aisle, and I'm not seeing any seats, and I'm, I'm going, I'm going, where in the world is my seat, you know? And I finally see in the very back of the plane next to the bathrooms, um, there's, there's half a seat. And um, the other half was taken up by a very large young woman, um, and I just had a bad attitude. I did, I admit. And I just said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just get in my seat, I'm going to lean my head back, and I'm just going to sleep the whole way. And I had my USC shirt on, um, and I, I leaned back and I closed my eyes, and the plane took off, and I hear her say, did you go to USC? <laughs> I said, yes, I did. I said, did you? She said, yeah, I did. I went there for my undergrad, and then I, I, now I'm working um, on campus, actually, at, at USC. And so, oh, so we, so we engaged in this conversation, and after a while, I said, well, what was your major down there? She says, Religion. I'm thinking, okay, God, you're really trying to get my attention here. <clears throat> and so I just decided we're, we're engaged in the conversation. And she was just a, a delightful young woman, and we had such a great conversation. Uh, and I asked her, I said, you know, I don't meet a lot of religion majors. What was it that prompted you to major in religion, of all things? And she says, well, you know, I was raised Catholic, but I wasn't really that into it, but I, I liked some parts, and I knew that there were other religions, so I wanted to find out kind of what's out there. I said, wow, that is so interesting. I said, so after four years of studying religion at one of the major universities in the country, I said, what conclusions did you come to about what's true? And she thought about it, and she kind of started an answer and kind of went a little bit in circles. And then she said, you know, I don't think I'm any closer to the truth than I was when I started. And... So again, I asked her, always ask permission before you share your opinion, right? I said, would it be helpful if I shared with you some things that helped me kind of figure out what, what the truth is? And um, she said, yeah, that would be really, really helpful. And so we just kind of start, started talking. I said, you know, if I would suggest that you start your search with Christianity. And she says, right, because you're a Christian. I said, no, no, not because I'm a Christian, but because... Christianity is testable. She says, what do you mean? I said, well, all the other religions are based on what they do for you. You know, if you join our religion, you'll feel better, you'll have inner peace, um, you'll, you'll have harmony in your relationships, um, you know, the, the, all these things. I said, Christianity 
doesn't say become a Christian for those things. Christianity says become a Christian because it's true. It said Christianity claims to be based on a historical fact, the resurrection of Jesus. And if he raised from the dead, then it's true. And if he didn't raise from the dead, then you can just eliminate Christianity from your search and you can move on to Hinduism and Islam and, and all the other religions. But you can eliminate Christianity right off the bat if it's not true. She says, are you saying that there's historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus? Well, we had a wonderful conversation <laughs> um, for, for three hours. And at the end, she thanked me. She said, this was such a great conversation. And I felt the same way. I said, I love this conversation. This was so good. And it ended with her downloading the book, The Case for Christ, on her Kindle and committing to start her search over again. And it was just a great thing, but it was just this back and forth. There doesn't have to be an argument when we're talking about spiritual things. We can just kind of enter in and seek to understand and then ask for permission to share, um, share the way that we see things. And it doesn't have to be an argument at all. There's three barriers to people coming to Christ. That's the first, the intellectual barrier. People have questions. She had questions. She sought for four years to find the answers to her questions. Didn't find them, but she was open. Okay? The, the second barrier is what we call the emotional barrier. And the emotional barrier, there, there's something traumatic. There's something emotional in them that's holding them back. Um, at search, we do these open forums where there is um, a group of people, and they're just invited to ask any question that they want. And a friend of mine was leading one of these open forums, and um, this woman said, well, I don't think I can believe in a God an all-powerful and all-loving God when I see all the suffering in the world? Sounds like classic intellectual question, right? He has the foresight or the insight to ask her a follow-up question. That is, of all the questions you could ask, why is that one the most important to you? And she says, well, I just can't believe in a God who would allow me to be sexually abused when I was only 11 years old. All of a sudden, what looked like an intellectual barrier was a very deep emotional barrier. And she had to get over that. So we overcome the intellectual barrier by providing good answers to people. We overcome the emotional barrier by just through love. It's by entering into their lives. It's by being there with them. It's like walking with them and being a living illustration. Like I say, when love is felt, the message is heard. And so we need to come in and we need to love those people with those emotional barriers. Well, the last barrier is the, um, what we call the barrier of the will or the volitional barrier. And what we mean by that is to come to Christ, we need to bow the knee to Christ. We need to get off the throne and we need to put him on the throne, right? And um, that's a problem for a lot of people. Uh, Aldous Huxley, who is the author of Brave New World, uh, one of the leading atheist philosophers of the early 20th century, and he said this. Uh, he was pretty honest about the barrier of the will. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning, and consequently I assumed that it had none. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. So at least he's being honest, right? But he's saying, I've rejected the idea of God 
because that implies a certain moral code. And I don't like that moral code. I want my sexual freedom over here. And so he's chosen to reject God. And that's a classic illustration of the barrier of the will. I don't want to change my life. I don't want to give up this or this or this. I was having a conversation with a a friend of mine recently, and we had talked all through the gospel, and he understood everything, um, but he wasn't quite there. And I said, what is it that's keeping you from crossing the line? What is it that's keeping you from from, from finally just giving it up and, and, you know, giving your life to Christ? And he said, I understand that if I do that, that I've got to give up control of my life, and I'm not ready to do that yet. And I said, yet? That's good. Um, I think he's, he's getting pretty close. But uh, this, it, this barrier of the will is a tough one. And the only way that we address the barrier of the will is through prayer. Okay? So the intellectual barrier, we can give good answers. The emotional barrier, we can love on them. The barrier of the will, again, God's responsible for the results. God is the only one who can break down that barrier. So we just come along and we love them and we hang with them, but we pray and we pray and we pray. When I started with Search Ministry, the first interview that I had, the guy says, the first question that he asked me was, who are you praying for? Who? That's a convicting question. If I asked you, who are you praying for? What would you say? Is there a list of people that you are praying for? Or are you just kind of going through life? kind of sleepwalking or without, without purpose, without direction, and hoping, well, maybe God will bring somebody into, into my life. We've got to be in prayer for our unchurched friends. I want to just summarize. We started with one, right? Because God throws a party every time one person comes into a relationship with him. That's just an awesome thing. There's two principles that will help you so much in this, that evangelism is a process It's not an event. And that God is responsible for the results. And that just relieves all of the burden. And then finally, there's three barriers that will keep a person from Christ. The intellectual barrier, the emotional barrier, and the barrier of the will. And we need to find out where this person is on the spiritual golf course by asking questions and digging deep, getting to know them, and coming into their life. Man, we just, we draw near. We become... Neighbors, right, develop the capacity to draw near to other people. We engage with their lives, we answer their questions, and more than anything, we pray and we pray and we pray. Father, I am so glad that you've invited us to be your ambassadors. Um, You could have done it yourself, you could have done it lots of other ways, but you gave it to us, Lord. We are your ambassadors, as though God were in treating through us, and we beg people on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God because you made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And you've given us the privilege of being part of the harvest. And so, God, I pray for us as ABF, as a church, that we would that we would make a huge impact in the community. I pray for each of us as individuals that we would impact both our next door neighbor and the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray all of this by his powerful name. Amen.